This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and we are going to talk now about games and a family game night. Always sounds like such a wholesome way to get together and have some fun and some laughs. But there is one game out there that is notorious for ending in fights, or at least just not being quite as wholesome as some of the other games out there. And that is a very popular game at that. It is Monopoly. We are going to visit the history of the game today with filmmaker Stephen Ives. He is the director of the upcoming episode of American Experience called Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History, the real story behind America's most popular game. It is premiering on February 20th on PBS stations across the country, including, of course, Prairie Public. Stephen, thank you so so much for joining us today. Hi, Ashley. Good to be with you. Ruthless. That yeah. is quite a word <laughs> when you're talking well, about what sounds like a children's game. Well, anybody who's had the pleasure of destroying their older brother or sister <laughs> in a game of Monopoly understands why that's the title of the film. I mean, it it is one of our great sort of rites of passage, right? I mean, it's sort of like... Uh, you hand it off to your kids when they're just old enough, and they uh, go through this experience of really bowing down at the altar of capitalism. I can't think of anything else that we have in our our cultural life where we sort of worship the kind of economic system that, that yeah. defines America. And, and so Monopoly is, is something that we all kind of tend to have as part of our DNA. Yeah, I can't think of a game of Monopoly that I've played that didn't end in in really hurt feelings or, you know, the the toppling the board over at the end even happens. Well, you're you're lucky that it actually ended. I mean, most <laughs> games never end. Uh, and that's one of the great kind of ironies too of the of the game that, that yeah. you've, you've invented a bunch of rules and ways of playing that extend the life of the game. If you played it strictly by the way the rules say you're supposed to play it, which nobody does, right? You'd probably <laughs> probably be over in an hour and a half or two hours, but that sure. never happens. Well, you have used a lot of interesting words already in this conversation. Uh, among them, the altar of capitalism, and then you also just use the word irony. Uh, and there are a number of ironies in the story of the history of Monopoly. I want to. Play Play a, a clip right now from the upcoming uh, episode of American Experience. In America, we've created a myth that capitalists like competition, but no capitalist wants competition. What all companies want is monopoly. The story about monopoly is filled with ironies. I mean, this is one of the things that makes it so compelling is not just the twists and turns, but the fact that it is a game about capitalism that was created to teach people about something completely different. The dynamics written into the rules of this game were never intended to beat the rules. It should come with a health warning like a packet of cigarettes. You are playing a twisted version of this game. It was supposed to be a critique of capitalism, and it turned out to be a celebration of it. And so it's a story that teaches us, compete, acquire, be ruthless, and you will go on to conquer the world. It's Monopoly through and through. A lot of fascinating threads in that to pull apart. So let's talk about what Monopoly was supposed to be when it was invented and then how it grew into let's fight over uh, capitalist greed at all times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the point, it was in, first of all, it was invented by a woman in 1904, a woman named Lizzie McGee, and no one really knows that. Uh, uh, and her, she was a socialist and a left-leaning intellectual and way ahead of her time. Uh, she was an inventor in her own right, a sort of a performance artist, a feminist, and she really wanted to communicate the idea that inequality in American society was a function of just gross problems with the way the economic system was set up. She was a follower of a radical economist named Henry George. And she designed the game, which she called the landlord's game, to try and highlight what she thought was wrong with American society. But she did two sets of rules. And if you played the game one way, it's the game we recognize as Monopoly. If you played it another way, it was a more communal kind of game 
that showed how a different vision of American society would work out. And of course, that idea, that game was really boring. The game that <laughs> caught on was the game where everybody gets to crush their opponent right. and there's only one person standing at the end. Right. And so um, that's how it all got launched. And uh, in the end, it was a, a, a different set of rules that triumphed. Yeah. When you say a communal sense in in the other set of rules, what do you mean? How was the game essentially incredibly different? She felt like the, the Henry George felt too that the, the, the there should be a single tax in America on land that you didn't everybody owned land it should be owned communally and that money raised on real estate should fund all of the things that make for an equitable and a just society and that was his point. He was immensely popular at the turn of the century. And Lizzie was one of his followers. And she really wanted to shine a light on how there were structural ways in which some people were being left behind in American life, not unlike the way they are being today. And so um, she was way ahead of her time. And she, she, she came up with a really interesting idea, which was to sell her ideas, not in a pamphlet or an article, but in the mechanics of a game. And she recognized that games have a really amazing power to inculcate ideas and values and attitudes in the people that play them. And it's a subtle but a powerful message that's being you know, disseminated. And she came up with a game that she thought was going to carry that message through. And hmm. in the end, it didn't succeed, but it was a really novel idea. Do we have a sense of why she did two sets of rules? Why would she have the second set that is antithetical to the point that she was trying to make? Well, she felt like the first set, which we now recognize as Monopoly, would show you how brutal and uh, 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 greedy and ruthless mm -hmm. uh, American capitalism was. And then her alternative would be this more benign, more enlightened view. So she meant them both to be a critique of the existing system, it just didn't turn out that way. Hmm. What do you think that this game says about human nature, that, that it was sort of supposed to be a critique on <clears throat> capitalism run amok, and it ends up sort of absolutely embracing it? Well, I think, you know, it's human nature. When you play a game, you want to win. Uh, you want there to be uh, someone who triumphs at the end. You want closure. Uh, and there's a natural competitive instinct that takes over. And one of the other things that games help you do is, is role play. You get to be this grasping corporate raider, you know, this amazingly brutal, uh, acquisitive force that's crushing everyone around you. And that's a fun thing to play mm -hmm. with. That's something you don't always get to do unless you're Jeff Bezos or something. You don't get to do that in, in, in regular, in normal life. Mm. Well, there is kind of this argument uh, today in uh, video games that it's catharsis. You can be this sort of violent person on the video game so that you aren't that way in real life. Was there ever that argument made uh, about being, you know, ruthless monopoly person? <laughs> I don't think there was enough game theory thinking back then to really <laughs> do it. I mean, okay. the games, but games were recognized as being these uh, teaching tools for sure. I mean, the very first game that was introduced in America was called The Mansion of Happiness back in 1843. It's actually mm. published by my great great grandfather of all people oh, in my. Salem, Massachusetts, and and it was a terrible game, unbelievably <laughs> boring, and all it did was try and teach you to avoid sloth and temperance and, temperance mm. and to, to, to be a good moral person. And of course, that was no fun. And, and it, was, it was like castor oil for kids. And they hated it. Right. So then you, give them a, then you give them a game like Monopoly and they have all sorts of fun getting a chance to be rich or be poor or to go to jail or to do all these things. And it, it, it just caught on because it, it, it struck at a chord that I think is very universal and, and, and part of human nature. Yeah. We're visiting today with Stephen Ives about the upcoming episode of American Experience called Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History, the real story behind America's most popular game. It premieres on February 20th and is also going to be streaming on PBS.org. Stephen, you mentioned that it was invented by 
a woman. A lot of the episode of Ruthless talks about this guy, Charles Darrow. Who is he and how does he get involved in the story of Monopoly? Well, Charles Darrow is an out-of-work engineer in the Depression, like millions of other people. And he happens to have some friends that he bumps into who are Quakers and live in Atlantic City. And they invite him over for dinner and they play a game of Monopoly. And he loves it. And he thinks it's a wonderful idea. And he asks um, uh, some friends, to the same friends, to write up some rules. And he starts to make the game and starts to sell it as Monopoly. And he's successful. Um, and therein lies the, the sort of origin story of Monopoly, yeah. which is that he's basically a fraud. Uh, and he stole the game that Lizzie McGee had invented more than 30 years earlier and that had grown and changed as a kind of folk game and adapted. Each, each yeah. new group of players would adapt it. And, mm. and that is, is what um, Darrow did. And the thing that he did was call it his own. He claimed that it came to him in a, in a bolt of lightning, a moment of inspiration. Hmm. And uh, it wasn't true. Yeah. Explain to our listeners this concept of a folk game and, and how it even was possible for Charles to claim ownership of this game. How, what are folk games and, and how were they played before we have all these uh, really strict intellectual property rights? Well, you think of any game, chess, checkers, you know, um, things like that. They just grew up and became a, a, a kind of in the, in the public domain. And um, Lizzie's game spread through radical economists and intellectuals and college campuses. And what would happen is that every time a new group of people would play the game, they would customize the board and they would put their own street names on it. And they'd have fun with some of the, the variables that were built into the game. And it eventually got to this group of Quakers in Atlantic City, and they're the ones that gave it the iconic street names that we know today, Marvin Gardens, yeah. Boardwalk and Park Place and Baltic and Mediterranean. And, 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 those, and they added some of the other things. They added hotels. They added um, the color groupings that are so familiar today. And so that's, it was sort of really one of the most, one of the earlier viral phenomenons. It didn't spread very fast. But it was definitely something that found its way around the Northeast until Charles Darrow came in and claimed it as his own. How did you first find out about the story of Elizabeth McGee? Well, it wasn't Lizzie. Uh, it was a um, book that I came across in 2005, as a matter of fact, uh, called The Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle. And it was written by a, a, a rumpled economics professor from San Francisco State University named Ralph Ansbach. And he had been uh, mad at the oil monopolies in the 70s and had published his own version of a game called Anti-Monopoly. <laughs> and he had been sued by General Mills, the huge cereal conglomerate, who at that point had bought Parker Brothers. And normally they, they sent him a scary letter. And, and unlike most people, he didn't walk away. He said, no way. And he sued them for and contested the fact that his, he didn't think there was a trademark conflict. And it took 10 years and uh, it took his case all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States before he was finally vindicated. But uh, in the course of that incredible process, he uncovered Lizzie McGee, her original 1904 patent, and this whole secret history of the game that mm. no one had ever uh, knew before. Right. Where did you find the other people that you talked to in this episode? There are people with titles that I didn't even know uh, existed. <laughs> Board game historians. Uh, yeah, there's a whole great game universe out yeah. there. And uh, they're fantastic uh, You can go down a very deep rabbit hole if you really talk game theory <laughs> with these folks. But... Um, NYU has a really great game lab. Uh, lots of you know, in Ch University of Chicago has a wonderful set of professors who are studying this kind of thing. And you think about how powerful board games are in our culture. I mean, I think Grand Theft Auto 4 sold something like $3 billion worth of, of games in the first weekend that it was available. Mm. Um, so you can't really underestimate the, the influence and power that games have in our our culture. And they were just a fantastic chorus to help us sort of dissect 
how monopoly fit into the whole story and and what the what the lessons if you will were from it and and the most important person in some ways was Mary Pilon who uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Monopolists, uh, and and it was a New York Times bestseller. And she's just a terrific historian and writer, and she really had a way to unpack the story that was incredibly priceless for us. Yeah. In some ways, do you think it is um, it, overstating it if I said the story of Monopoly really is, in a lot of ways, the story of America? I don't think so at all. I mean, that's what drew me to the story in the first place. I think it's a it's a fascinating lens through which to look at this country. I mean, I think it's all there from the greed and the, the ruthlessness to the corporate maneuvering and the courtroom dramas and men taking and credit for things women did. <laughs> exactly, that's a common refrain <laughs> for sure. Um, and I think that it it gets at very much how we think about ourselves. I mean, mm. in a way, the game is based on a kind of a myth. It's, it's everyone starts with the same amount of money and everyone has access to the bank and the winner is the smartest person who's left standing. And, uh, and we know that that's not how the real world works. That ignores race and class and, and inheritance and all of these other factors that can make a difference in whether you succeed or fail. But it's a it's a it's a story that we like to tell ourselves, and what's so interesting is that the game itself was based on a myth, because Charles Darrow stole the game, and yet his rags to riches story about this poor man in the depths of the depression mm. who strikes it rich was such a uh, appealing narrative that Parker Brothers, even when they knew it was a lie, they kept stoking it, they kept using it because it's what Americans wanted to hear back right. then, and I think still do today. Right. On a lot of levels, most of what any advertiser is, is selling is, is a story and not a thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How many games of Monopoly have you played, do you think? <laughs> you know, not as many as... I mean, I'm not a fanatic. I probably hmm. played in, in dozens and dozens of them when I was a kid. I don't think I've ever finished one. Right. Um, Has anybody? I don't know about, how about, yeah, how about you? I mean, were you a fanatic? No, no, not at all. I mean, for a little no. while, it was kind of the only game. I feel like I grew up before we, before it exploded, that the games were, you know, so cheap and commonplace. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder. And, and what, what about, what about a favorite token? Did you have to pick when was your oh, the yeah. shoe or the yeah, roadster yeah, or yeah. the top hat? Um, I did like the top hat. I just thought it was adorable. Yeah, kind yeah. of a leftover from the Depression era. Sure. <laughs> Who was your favorite? Oh, I always went with the battleship or the roadster. Typical, okay. small, yeah. you know, teenage boy or, you know, elementary school yeah. age kid. And what was your strategy? Did you buy up monopolies? Uh, you know, I, I didn't buy, uh, I, I often held back because I was, maybe because I'm a New Englander, I'm naturally frugal. And so that was not necessarily the right strategy. Hmm. I've learned some secrets about how to win, though, in this process. Are you going to tell us any? I, if you'd like to, I could, I could give you a quick, a quick tip, okay. which is don't buy hotels. Buy four houses and keep them on the property because you can create a housing shortage. There aren't enough houses out there. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. And, and the orange and the reds, are really good properties because a lot of people get sent to jail and, and get tossed backwards. And so they're going to cross over your property more often. <laughs> these are the, these are some of the sort of simple things okay, you yeah. got to remember. And then, and then, and then oh, don't put money in, in the middle of the board and oh. take it out as free parking. Cause that just adds liquidity to the game. <laughs> so Stephen, next time I Google your name, is it going to be real estate developer? I mean, <laughs> In my dreams, yeah. <laughs> the way the way public television is going, you never know. But no, I think I'm I'm pretty happy where we are. Yeah. Did you rethink who you are and and what your values are specific to playing a game like this as you were working on this episode of American Experience? I, I think I Lizzie McGee's story once again drove home to me the way in which. Um, there are just great 
structural inequalities that mm. exist in American life and American culture and American economic uh, life in particular. And I think there's a there's a tendency to want to kind of brush past those and assume that everyone um, rises to the top out of their own initiative. Uh, and, and it's just not true. I mean, one of the things that you, sociologists and, and, and uh, researchers have looked at is like watch people play a game of Monopoly. And they, the person who wins is usually given a huge help by luck because luck is definitely a part of the game. But if they win, they assume hmm. that they made their own luck, that it was all due to their their extraordinary skill and insight and intelligence. And I think you can see that happening in corporate America. You can see it happening in so many places where we want to believe that everything that we earn and everything that we do is something we, we did on, on our own. And, and I think it's, it's just not true. I think we're all, we're all often given a huge advantage by various aspects of our, our own situation. And, and that's an important thing that we should be remembering. We're visiting today with Stephen Ives. He is the founder and executive producer and director and writer of Insignia Films. His latest episode of American Experience is called Ruthless Monopoly's Secret History, the real story behind America's most popular game. It premieres on Prairie Public on Monday, February 20th, and is also streaming at PBS.org. Stephen, what is Insignia Films? Oh, it's a production company that I started, God forbid, 30 years ago. And uh, we do a bunch of films uh, about American history. I made a big series called The West back in the 90s with uh, my friend Ken Burns, who was the executive producer. And um, we've done a number of really rewarding collaborations over the years with the American Experience. And um, we are uh, also making independent films uh, outside of the PBS system. And and we're just grateful to be given a chance to tell some of these great stories. They're, they're really rewarding and, and important, I think. As I'm looking on the website for Insignia Films, and it's insigniafilms.com, I'm looking at your team, and I'm noticing uh, a lot of women and um, ethnic minorities featured. And so often when you look at a website, for, for many years it was you would see primarily white men. I'm curious... As you were setting up this company, were you very specific and intentional about wanting diversity among your staff, or did that come organically from finding people who were telling the lesser told stories? I think a little bit of both. I wanted uh, people that were interested in not shying away from complicated and often dark and troubling stories about America. I I think we need to be incredibly clear-eyed about our past and and face our flaws, uh, you know, squarely. I mean, I think Alexis de Tocqueville once said, "The greatest of, of America, the greatness of America, lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults." Hmm. And I've always thought that that's a great way to think about America. And and I uh, I was just lucky enough to. Uh, eventually worked with two extraordinary women, Amanda Pollock and Lauren DeFilippo as my partners. And, and we've been able to attract a, a wonderfully smart, diverse and interesting group of people to work with. And it's really been, it's been a great experience to share perspectives with those kinds of people. Cause I think they all bring something new to the table and they all see our nation's story in a different way. And I think it's important to listen to those voices. That is Emmy Award-winning writer and director Stephen Ives. His landmark series, The West, was one of the most watched PBS programs of all time. You can check his latest work for American Experience. The episode is called Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History, the real story behind America's most popular game, coming up on February 20th on PBS stations. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ashley. I really enjoyed talking to you. We'll have more Main Street after the news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. 24 states have filed a federal lawsuit against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Army Corps of Engineers over who controls and manages the country's navigable waters within state borders. The suit is just the latest maneuver in a near-decade-long debate about the scope of the federal government's authority and what kinds of waters fall under the definition of waters of the United States, better known as WOTUS. 
North Dakota Attorney General Drew Wrigley says he pushed for the case to be filed in federal district court in North Dakota. I don't know if there's a state with a, with a more of a negative impact on North Dakota because of a really unique geology with uh, regard to our surface uh, water and, and the potholes across much of the state. It is a dramatic, it is all-encompassing. I felt like it was uh, important to file this lawsuit at what is, is really ground zero for the negative impact of this enactment by a federal agency. The recent finalization of a rule was a, a, with a revised de- definition of WOTUS was the tipping point for the attorneys general to file suit. The plaintiffs claim the new rule is the Biden administration's effort to expand its juridic- jurisdictional reach in an unlawfully aggressive way. Law enforcement agencies across the state participated in the Drive Sober or Get Pulled Over enforcement campaign from uh, December 14th, 2022 to January 31st, 2023 to deter motorists from driving impaired. Lauren Wallman, Public Safety Information Program Manager for the North Dakota DOT, says numbers of alcohol or drug-related citations issued were higher this campaign than they were in last year's campaign. There were 66 DUI arrests, 23 arrests or citations for minors, and the campaign also resulted in 34 drug-related arrests. And the House of Representatives passed Bill 1254, which would prohibit medical gender transitioning procedures from being performed on minors while providing criminal penalties to medical professionals who do the procedures. Brandon Pritchard is a representative from Bismarck. This type of medication and surgeries are so new, there's not even enough long-term evidence to prove what will happen to these these children in the future. Let's realize that this needs to be written in our criminal code. We have to have a criminal violation for butchering children and for changing them and playing on a dysphoria. We should treat a child's dysphoria with mental health care. We should not over-medicate them or surgically cut off parts of their body. Representative Carla Hansen of Fargo and others opposing the bill said medical treatment for minors struggling with uh, transgenderism is vital to their mental and physical health. Kids who are questioning their identity are among the most Uh, highest risk for suicide. The statistics here are just staggering. Gender-affirming care is suicide prevention. Prohibiting this care would be devastating. The House did not, however, pass Bill 1301, which would allow civil suits to be brought up against the doctors who perform the operations or the parents and caregivers who consented to the treatment. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and joining me now from our Bismarck studio is News Director Dave Thompson. He joins us once a week to go beyond the headlines and give us a little bit more context and analysis for the biggest news stories of the week. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Ashley. And per usual, busy legislative session. Mm-hmm. So- Especially as we're getting close to the crossover date, which uh-huh. will be, they think, Friday of next week. All right. Well, one of the things they are working on is child care as part of workforce development. Mm-hmm. This just continues, I'm, not even to just plague the state, but really the nation. Correct. So what's the latest on what North Dakota is trying to do about it? There's some stabilization grant discussion. Right. Stabilization grant to basically say, we'll pay you to keep your door open to offer child care. Hmm. And that, that's been a real issue because everybody's saying, they do want child care, but they can't find it. Right. And so, so that this is kind of a uh, an extension of what happened during the COVID pandemic when you got some federal funds to make sure child care stayed open. So they sure. want to do that for the state. Has there been any discussion with employers who might otherwise not have a daycare? But sometimes, you know, that's a thing. You can drop your kid off at the same office where you work. Maybe there could be some room for certain employers to open child that's, care. That, I believe, is still very much a part of the discussion. But can they actually do something in state law to do that um, mm. is something that's being researched. It's a workforce issue because you can't find ch- child care providers. So maybe it allows a child care uh, office or agency to give an incentive to bring more employees in so that they can keep keep it open maybe and maybe some growth. Absolutely. And there's been some discussion on increasing the background check efficiencies, right? That is yet yeah, right. It takes days. It takes mm-hmm. several days to get this done. They're trying to get it to the point where it's two days or less to to get that turned around. And I can you can understand why. Because the demand is just so hot right now. Right. 
The Senate has overturned a committee vote on an insulin price cap bill. So this came with a do not pass recommendation. It did. And uh, what the what the floor did, and they said, no, we're not going to agree with the committee. So they are going to they're going to start a pilot program because they have some control over the state health plan. So that's where we're going to start. And the plan is to study it to make sure that this is working and maybe Hmm. in the next session expand it to everybody to make sure it's, you know. And insurance companies sometimes fight this because they talk about mandates. And maybe this, this might be a real interesting discussion two years from now. Okay. They are looking at capping that out-of-pocket cost to $25. Right, and $25 seems to be a reasonable cap according to the people who support this bill. Mm-hmm. And the, we'll see what happens. I, I, yeah. I, it'll be worth watching. I think that's going to be one of the spotlights if it passes the other house and is put into a play, uh, to effect for a couple of years. It's going to be interesting to watch that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, to talk about watching this as part of the state health plan. Mm -hmm. So that would just be for state employees, right? That's correct. Do we know what big sample size that is? How many state employees are needing insulin? And can that be an accurate predictor of how it would work on a statewide level? Now, that's an interesting question that I I, I would like to get to more of the bottom of that. Because there are approximately 14,000 or 15,000 state employees, if you count everybody. Sure. And how many in a population would have diabetes that is insulin dependent? Now, yeah. that is an interesting question. I can pose that to the health department. They may have All some. Right. But, <laughs> but there are problems with HIPAA. We could probably do raw numbers. Maybe yeah, numbers, but, not, raw names, numbers, but not names, of course. Raw numbers, but not names, which is fine, yes. All right. Another (laughs) change in the state retirement plan. Uh, This is the latest of a bill uh, looking at this defined contribution plan versus a defined benefit plan. It's now uh, in the House Appropriations, people. Right. They're looking at it. They held some hearings on it already. I am predicting for you right now that this is probably going to be one of the top five issues legislators will talk about all session long because... Hmm. There are people who say if you get rid of defined contribution, that takes away one of our incentives to get people to work here. There are those who support the defined benefit plan who said, well, younger people want portability. So you have a defined benefit plan, which is like a 401k or Roth IRA, and they, that would be a portable insurance plan or, or portable retirement plan, I should say. Sure. So another one of these one generation is one way, another generation might be leaning the other. And this this is interesting because a lot of it might be uh, not quantifiable yet. There's a lot of discussion that that's what they're hearing from certain people in certain age groups, but there are, there are different stories out there. I think mm. it's going to be a lot more to sort through. What's going on with a state firearm? Oh, Oh, yes. We have a state firearm. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I've heard of a state flower, a state tree, even a state mammal. Right. But we now, we could become one of nine states that actually has a state firearm. Okay. And if you'll notice, it's the 1876 Winchester, which is is connected to... President Theodore Roosevelt. There's, okay. there's a lot of I wondered the North Dakota connection here because that gun wasn't invented here. No, no. Okay. The, the, the connection is that uh, it was President Roosevelt's favorite weapon when he was here in North Dakota hmm. in the Badlands, and he used a lot for his hunting. So there is documentation. They have apparently some early photographs of Theodore Roosevelt with the gun. Okay. And so this is a, an incentive... Um, from a constituent who said, why don't we do this? We can do this, and it's a nice way to, you know, more promote the state. Yeah. Because at the same time, that committee took a look at another bill, which I think is very interesting, probably is might be a little even easier to get, and that's to have a commemorative stamp for Theodore Roosevelt when they open the TR Library at Medora. Okay. Yeah, I've never heard of a state firearm before. Is it largely just a commemorative touristy sort of Pretty thing? Much. Or? Pretty much okay. it is, yes. All right. What's going on with the school safety bill? Some people are concerned about data. 
Well, this is this was introduced by Representative Ben Koppelman of West Fargo. Now, his his comment is that we should pay about 15 percent of the state aid that schools get should go towards school safety programs, hardening the schools, et cetera. But you could reduce that to 5 percent if you allowed teachers or other employees of a school district to conceal carry. Now, that didn't get a lot of support in uh, the legislative session, so they've turned it into a data gathering thing because nobody really knows how much local schools are spending in keeping schools safe. Mm -hmm. So they're going to collect the data, take a look at it, and maybe try something else two years from now. What are teachers saying to this? I don't know a lot of elementary school students and teachers who really know how to handle a gun even. Oh, that's correct, and that's what you're hearing from teachers and what you're hearing from some administrators, that they they don't want their second-grade teacher to have a Glock, for example. Hmm. So, you know, there, there's still some concern about that. How much of this is in response to what did happen recently, though, where I believe it was a six-year-old brought a gun and, and shot a student, and this was in Virginia? Yes, and, and you'll notice that some legislation in the North Dakota legislature reflects uh, what's going on, you know, current events. And that was one of, one of the, um, shall we say, circumstances that said the that allowed the sponsor of the bill to introduce it. Hmm. Now, this would allow people to better understand how much schools are spending on safety. What do schools do in terms of safety? Are there a lot of schools out in North Dakota that even have, for example, uh, machines to pass through and check for weapons? And that's that's a good point because that's an expensive proposition. Certainly. If you say you're a school district in western North Dakota with, you know, maybe a handful of students, 20, 30, are you going to buy a magnetometer? That's a good question, too. But you're talking about things like security cameras. You're talking about things like secure locked doors mm. and other surveillance and other procedures to allow okay. visitors into a school. North Dakota is looking at a health and well-being study. This is from NDSU and Blue Cross Blue Shield. Right, and they unveiled it in Bismarck, and they're, they're, there's a, a meeting Next week in Fargo, where they're going to be talking about the results of the study, well, there were mixed results about uh, well-being and and wellness. And what they're saying is if you have the right things in place for quality of life, you're going to be happier. You're going to be healthier. Now, they said that North Dakota does pretty well. We've got pretty good incomes. We've got uh, good schools. We've got this, that, and the other thing. But there are some things where it, you know, possibly could be improved. One is in the area of early childhood education, which I found extremely hmm. interesting because that's been a fight in the legislature for a number of years. North Dakota is the lowest in the in the nation in terms of its children that are enrolled in early childhood education programs, wow. which um, there's, there's community, community conversations going to happen about this. Blue Cross Blue Shield, through its Caring Foundation, wants to help facilitate the discussion and facilitate some changes that might make our scores look a little bit better. How would early childhood education have an impact on well-being? Is it primarily at that point for the students or for the parents as well? Both. Now, they're saying it's definitely both. Um, that, um, well, again, it ties into child care and the idea that we need child care programs for workforce development. A lot of things tie together, which is amazing the amount of connections that you can see when they when they presented that study. We're going from early education to higher education. A tuition freeze uh, has been endorsed. Right. Now, this is from a subcommittee of the House uh, Appropriations Committee. It'll go to the full Appropriations Committee next week. Now, what they're saying is it's going to be amount that's going to be about 4% per year in terms of what tuition would increase. State would pick up about $47 million on that over two years. And there seems to be universal support as North Dakota is looking at some of our neighboring states, South Dakota and Minnesota, who are looking at tuition freezes over the next two years. Right. And this would be coming at the time, too, when tuition is potentially picking up following a little bit of COVID uh, slowdown. That that is correct. You know, if you'll notice, um, 
uh, North Dakota schools you saw their enrollment fall like a lot of schools over the over the nation did Certainly. during COVID, and they're starting to pick back up. But this might be an incentive to get other students to come back to the fold and enroll in colleges or universities. The House has approved a bill to remove a trigger on oil taxes. Explain to us what a trigger tax is uh, in regards to oil. Okay, what happens is there is a price point where if it goes above a price point, and it's an average of price over, over so many months, if it goes above that by a certain percentage, well, then it goes from 10%, which was the thing that was negotiated in the 2015 session, to 11%. Now, a little bit of history. When we passed Measure 6, oil taxes were at 11.5%. But in 2015, the legislature negotiated, and they said, okay, we're going to cut it to 10%, but we need a trigger mechanism if it goes over $100 a barrel, for example, and we can go back to 11%. Hmm. Well, the people who are saying we should get rid of the trigger, yes, it did go over $100 a barrel for about four to five months, but the industry was slow to, you know, put reinvestment in North Dakota. And there's some concern that if oil production drops, that that drops our revenue stream from oil. So there's this is a way to kind of incent the industry to put some more uh, dollars and capital into North Dakota. We check in with News Director Dave Thompson once a week. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Ashley. Madeline is next. Hey, lifelong learner, Humanities North Dakota is offering six 12-week online classes taught by nationally recognized scholars. Class topics include Norse mythology, indigenous history, understanding the Constitution, Russian literature, and more. Registration and more information about North Dakota's lifelong learning community can be found at humanitiesnd.org. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, Know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. We hear the fanfare, and that tells us it's time to go to the movies with our movie reviewer, Matt Olean. Matt, this week, you want to talk about 80 for Brady. <laughs> that hard-hitting show. It's a, co- it's a comedy of four longtime friends in the movie. Why the show? Uh, so this is inspired by true events, and that's that's where we'll leave it right there, Craig. <laughs> uh, let's just say that many liberties are taken with this story, especially when the women get to the Super Bowl. This is, of course, based on kind of inspired by a true story of four women who were huge Tom Brady fans. These are elderly women. They think he's gorgeous. They love to watch him play. They want to see him in the Super Bowl. So they concoct away, as you've seen from the trailer, to get to the Super Bowl against Atlanta, the 2017 game when New England came from way behind at halftime. People remember that's the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. So Rita Moreno, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Sally Field, five Oscars between these four great women. And I wanted it to be a little funnier than it was. I I didn't think that the director and the screenwriter hit the right beats. You know, when you're editing a movie, Craig, a comedy especially, it's got to be edited on the right beat to get the maximum laughs. I had a feeling that the trailer gave me all the laughs I was going to get. Like when Lily Tomlin says, Tom's almost 40. That's like 80 in human years. <laughs> okay, we get that. Brady's ageless. But it doesn't come off as funny the way the scene is edited. And so that falls on the director, Kyle Marvin, the screenwriters, Emily Halpern, and Sarah Haskins. I think they failed a little bit with that. Look, this is a reviewer-proof film. I think older audiences are going. Football audiences might be going to see this testament by Tom Brady to himself, basically. He's the producer of the movie, expertly timed right around his retirement. But I wanted it to be better. Look, it is what it is. It is, it is a lot of, there's a lot of old jokes. There's a lot of jokes about aging and things like that. And we're going to watch sweaty men, you know, tackle each other like the gladiators, lines like that. As I said, when they get to the game, Things get ridiculous in in terms of stretching the truth as to what really happened. But you know what? With a movie like this, you just got to go with it. It's it's not that good, but I think if you go with an open mind and realize that events are taken uh, beyond the truth here and you want to see four very spry, wonderful old actresses, and they are. They just – they move around so easily. 
They they do some dancing with Billy Porter, which you've probably seen in the trailer. And they all just, you know, are, are in phenomenal condition for their ages, and they need to be complimented to that. And it's good uh, that there's a vehicle for them. I just wish it would have been a little better, a little funnier for them. Matt, did you appreciate any one of their performances over the other? They're all kind of the same. I mean, they're all they all kind of get equal screen time. Rita Moreno kind of gets the the wackiest portion of the show when she goes to this NFL party and she eats something that turns out to be illicit. And she ends <laughs> up in a poker game and you know that with Guy Fieri and Billy Porter and some of these people. So that one gets a little a little amusing. Uh they they probably all get the same screen time. Lily Tomlin's kind of the leader of the bunch, I would say. Uh, Sally Field is more the by-the-book person. Jane Fonda still likes to flirt with men, younger men. And Rita Moreno is just in phenomenal physical shape for age 91. Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski eventually make appearances in this movie. Uh, so, you know, if you're a Patriots did, did fan. Did Gronkowski steal the show? Uh, no, he's barely That's a in surprise. it. He's barely in it, uh, but he is the subject of of Jane Fonda's uh, fantasies. I, I will say that much. So, um, look, it is what it is. It's a movie for people that maybe enjoy football and want to see these four old actresses, older actresses. Let me put it that way: uh, do their thing. Matt Raquel Welsh died this week. Yeah, that was kind of surprising. Only eighty-two by today's standards. Uh, brief illness, I guess. You know, obviously, she was the pinup sex symbol of the late 60s. And Fantastic Voyage and One Million Years B.C. both came out in 1966. And that that was the moment when Raquel Mania hit uh, the famous poster of her as the cavewoman in One Million, One Million Years B.C. But I will give her credit, despite not being an Oscar nominee or an Oscar winner, she did a lot of action movies. And that was unusual in previous times for, let's say, a Marilyn Monroe sex symbol type. So she was in Hanny Calder, 100 Rifles with Jim Brown and Burt Reynolds, The Kansas City Bomber, The Three Musketeers with Michael York. She's very funny in that. Uh, Did Broadway, A Woman of the Year. So I think a better actress than people maybe gave her credit for. Uh, And like I said, did a lot of action movies too. So that was unusual. And that was, I think, what kind of set her apart was kind of her doing these action movies. What's her legacy relative to television? Uh, she got an Emmy nomination for a TV movie. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it's a, she plays a woman going through ALS. That happened in 1987. So she did some TV appearances. Famous cameo on Seinfeld. Uh, people might remember that. So, yeah, just uh, for, for men of a certain age like we are, Craig, Raquel was a big deal. And so she will be missed. Time for trivia. Okay. Man, I think this might be a softball for okay. you. You talked about the Academy Awards that these four actresses have won, mm-hmm. three of the four. Yes. Which one of these act- actors, actresses, have also won a Presidential Medal of Freedom? Rita Moreno. Correct. And she's an EGOT winner. She has won the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, and the Tony. She won a Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bush mm. in 2004. Okay. That's Madeline. We've been to the movies. On Prairie Public Primetime TV tonight. Hi, I'm Alan Cumming, your host for the annual awards ceremony that honors movies and television made by grown-ups for grown-ups that speak to grown-up minds. Join me and career achievement winner Jamie Lee Curtis. The only thing I got going for me in this whole big wide world is this body, this face, and when I got up here. I like being a best. For the Movies for Grown-Ups Awards with AARP, the magazine, on great performances. Watch Great Performances Movies for Grown-Up Awards with AARP The Magazine tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on Prairie Public. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Josh Beauchet, broker and realtor with Hatch Realty, brokered by Real. Serving homebuyers and sellers in the Fargo-Moorhead Metro, Grand Forks, Bismarck, Mandan, and Detroit Lakes area. Josh can be reached at 701-369-4839 or hatchrealty.com. 
What is it about royal families that distracts us from our own hectic lives and captures our attention? Here are these people who should have everything that they could possibly want and are still struggling to figure out how to live their lives. Jack Gems on her new novel, Empty Theater. And all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Starting at 7 a.m. Central, right here on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Date Book for February 17th. On this date, in 1932, Barnes County District Attorney Roy Ployer was considering charges for a tragic shooting. 17-year-old Myron Tendick had shot and killed Henry Rood. Rood was his stepfather. The incident occurred in their home in Nome, North Dakota. But even though the boy had confessed, the facts of the case were far from cut and dried. The case was complicated by the fact that Tendick was under the age of 18, meaning that the matter was taken up in juvenile court. Furthermore, Tendick said he shot his stepfather in order to protect his mother. Rude was reportedly intoxicated and arguing with Tendick's mother. Tendick ran to get the marshal, but the marshal was in church, so the boy returned home without him. He described how his mother and stepfather were still arguing when he came back. When Rude became threatening, Tendick, afraid for his mother's safety, got a revolver. He fired two shots. The first hit Rude, the second missed. Rude died a short time later in the Valley City Hospital. Tendick's version of the events was corroborated by his mother, his 13-year-old sister, and a friend of Tendick's who witnessed the event. On February 18th, Tendick's lawyer waived the preliminary hearing and the lad was charged with first-degree murder. The case came to trial in June. When the marshal testified, he expressed the opinion that the shooting was premeditated. The defense presented a strong rebuttal, with Tendick's mother, sister, and his friend all testifying on his behalf. Tendick's mother said she and Rude frequently quarreled, and she was afraid of him. Despite that support, the jury found Tendick guilty, and sentenced him to 10 years in prison. In July, he requested a transfer to the boys' training school in Mandan. His request was granted with the understanding that he could be returned to prison should the superintendent of the school determine that was necessary. Tendick was on the front page of the newspaper again in 1934, but for something considerably more positive. He won first place for his dramatic reading in the state speech and music contest. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Meryl Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. That's it for this Friday edition of Main Street. Coming up Monday on the show for President's Day, we have guest host and presidential scholar Rick Collin in conversation about Abraham Lincoln as he visits with a fellow presidential scholar. That's coming up Monday on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.